0: I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, Jenny Scanlon and Jill Oakman discuss their leadership journeys, the importance of women in STEM, and UL's mission to create a safer world. They discuss the ways UL approaches investing in people, a strengths-based approach to leadership development, merging technological innovation with customer service strategies, and more. For those of you listening, we are delighted to have two outstanding women with us today at different stages in their leadership journeys. So, we have both Jennifer Scanlon, who's president and CEO of UL, and she is joined by Jill Oakman, who's the vice president and general manager of supply chain insights at UL. We're really excited to have you both here with us today. It's going to be a great conversation. So, Jenny, let's start with you, and UL, you've been rumored to say this is your favorite job. So tell me why.
1: You know, I spent 17 years at USG Corporation, and we were named as America's safest company. I have been an unabashed safety advocate uh, for my entire life. And when I got the phone call uh, to discuss becoming CEO at UL, I had to laugh. My daughters described it as safety freak joins safety company. (laughs) But I think it's uh, it's real as an employee, as an employer, as a parent, as a friend, as a colleague, making sure that we're keeping each other safe demonstrates a real depth of a relationship, a real responsibility to one another. And in addition to keeping people safe uh, from the modern technologies of its time, be it electricity uh, supply chain challenges sustainability. um, We are also our mission is to make the world a safer place and so carrying forth, um, you know, through the research and the advocacy and all of those pieces uh, is incredibly important for us at UL. So
0: is this in your DNA? Have you always been like that? Because like in my household, my husband's definitely the safety person and I am not. You know, so the kids more often get hurt on my watch than his, which is really embarrassing. Um, but so are you always like this? Is it pervade all aspects of your life?
1: I am. I think it started, I was a lifeguard for seven summers. So that whole sense of, how, you know, how do you prevent... Uh, people from slipping and falling, not running yeah. on the pool deck. And um, I'm rescuing a few kids at Elk Grove Park District uh, in my day. Nothing serious, but nevertheless, you it only takes a few seconds for a toddler to fall face down in a baby pool. And if nobody's paying attention, I was right there. Yeah. So, it's so in you me. were made for this job. I was, I was. And, you know, I have to tell you, when I joined UL, I knew UL's scale, I knew UL's history, uh, USG had been one of UL's customers for over a hundred years. Uh, but what I really didn't understand was the history and depth and breadth of how UL has started its business here in Chicago in the Columbian Exposition in 1893 and turned into this global powerhouse of almost 15,000 employees. In hundreds of countries around the world. So, our commitment to keeping the world a safer place uh, is real.
0: Yeah. I know, I don't know that everyone knows that story. It could be good to just do the 30 second, you know, how it was started at that time. And then you had told me before about this incredible letter to the president that was written. Okay.
1: So, UL is a 127 year old company. We were founded right here in Chicago. William Henry Merrill Jr., our founder, came to the Columbian Exposition in 1893 and was asked to ensure that it was safe, that the testing for the light bulbs and the electrical switches there at the World's Fair uh, weren't going to cause uh, any types of fires or other electrical hazards. So he started with fire safety, but then he stayed on it, looking at all of the other innovations of our time. And this is where Um, We started in the research, the public advocacy, and then ultimately with customers uh, paying us to test the safety of their product. And one of my favorite stories around the public advocacy was that William Henry Merrill, Jr. wrote President Taft a letter asking him to remove the lighted candles from the Christmas tree at the White House because he understood that people go where their leader goes. And if the president and the first lady were lighting their Christmas tree with candles, the rest of Americans would believe that that was an acceptable safety practice. He succeeded in convincing the president to remove that hazard uh, from the White House. And many, many, many lives, I'm certain, are saved because of it. That's amazing. Again, one of those
0: throwback things that now in modern society we look back on through our lens and think why did we do that <laughs> you know so many of these things <laughs> like mm-hmm. watching old shows and babies in the
1: front seat no seat belts i mean all of these oh, things exactly although i will tell you i mean you still hear stories at christmas about a house catching fire yeah. but one of the even uh, important things that that we realize and it's one of the areas that jill is focused on is the safety of the supply chain and understanding what those raw materials are uh, in your products, and you think about a house 50 years ago or 75 years ago if it caught fire, it was wood, it was plaster, Plaster's full of water, um, wood burns slowly. And today uh, you look at the amount of you know, really inorganic substances in a home and how quickly in less than three minutes a candle uh, can pretty much spread and take down an entire house. Yeah. So those hazards are still
2: real.
0: Yeah. So when we invited you to do this, it was important to you to invite Jill along to the conversation you wanted to have here, here with you. Tell us why that was important.
1: I, first of all, always believe that uh, stories and examples make things real. And Jill's story of having been at UL uh, for well over a decade and moving into these new areas where we are Uh, continuing to address the safety challenges, the new risks that our customers face, I think are very relevant. Um, I'm also a big believer in developing our leaders and um, giving our leaders opportunities to showcase uh, their leadership skills. So I was thrilled when Jill agreed uh, to join me on today's podcast and talk about uh, her experiences at UL and uh, the terrific work that she and her team are doing in many of the very new areas of Enterprise and Advisory Services.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being here, Jill. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Um,
0: so tell us a little bit about your journey to VP and GM Supply Chain Insights at UL. And I'm particularly interested, was there either an influential person or was there a pivotal turning point? Something along the way that really catapulted you to where you are now?
2: Yeah. So, you know, 15 years at UL, I never thought that I would be at any company for 15 years. Um, and it's just been an incredible experience. You know, Jenny talked about safety changing and, um, you know, when safety changes and the definition of safety changes, UL changes. And in all of the change, I've had so many opportunities to do different things. And so it's it's a great company with lots of opportunity and a lot of really wonderful people that I've been able to surround myself with and, and learn from you know, as as a child, hard work was instilled in me at a really early age. I come from a family of two parents that never went to college. So I just always felt I needed to work hard. And I also have this sense of the need of accomplishment. If I finish a day and I don't feel like I've accomplished anything, I don't feel satisfied by that day. And so I think, you know, over the years being at UL, Um, and just working with teams and rolling up my sleeves and working next to teams and really understanding our customers and their pains and the jobs they want to do has just really allowed me to uh, really grow my career here at UL. As far as an influential person or a pivotal turning point in this journey. And I'm not just saying that because she's here with me today. Jenny's arrival at UL was really a pivotal time for me. A first woman CEO of UL, somebody that came in and made changes and needed changes in the organization. And that change allowed lots of new opportunities sort of together through a lot of self-discovery that Jenny herself sort of helped us all feel comfortable with gave me the courage to sort of step up and and ask for the job I wanted. And so here I am now uh, leading the supply chain insights team. That's great. So clearly this
0: conversation is going to be about people, if you all haven't guessed that already. So let's talk about some of the hallmark ways that UL invests in its people and how these particular activities have impact. So Jenny, let's just start with you as CEO, you know what you are very specifically focused on when you think about people, and then Jill, I'd love to hear about how you've experienced these things as a rising leader.
1: People has been an important aspect of UL um, forever, and we really are a professional services firm, so our people are our resource. My predecessor invested very heavily in developing an internal set of programs that have been labeled UL University and those continue to be extremely important in evolving um, our people's abilities to stay current on very important topics, both technical topics as well as uh, management and leadership topics. So in addition to the work that UL University has done, um, we partner with a number of universities and um, really, I think that brings a depth and a set of dimension and a global perspective uh, for our employees. And then I am a believer in also getting outside the corporation and meeting with other companies and visiting uh, with other uh, leaders and, and those who have insight. And so I um, have introduced UL to a program that I was in the inaugural class of uh, back in, I think, 2008, uh, called Leading Women Executives. And it's a program really focused on women who are about to enter the C-suite, have the potential to enter the C-suite, and um, really help shape those formative years of leadership, of moving from being the best performer to a really good manager into being a solid leader. And I think that's really exciting as we continue uh, to expand our breadth. And then the last piece of this that I really think um, we're evolving on is very deliberate succession planning. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just putting people through a class, but it's really thinking about what are those development needs that our individual leaders have And how do we structure appropriately, be it through UL University, through online opportunities, or through some of these other external pieces, uh, to really to continue to develop them into the future leadership team uh, that our board expects us to be?
0: Yeah. So then, Jill, how are you experiencing these things? Is it different than it was before? Is there something in particular that has been really influential for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the the leadership training that I or leadership programs that I went to prior to Jenny joining. And then, of course, I was also gifted uh, with the leadership uh, training course that Jenny herself also went through. And so, you know, having been at UL for 10 years or 15 years, um, 10 years ago, um, I attended a class called the Global Leadership Program, where we were immersed in other cultures. Um, and it followed this forming, storming, norming, and performing, right? And so we'd go to different places around the world and, experience, and it was all experiential learning, walking under the tunnels of Disney and learning about a culture by design, being in Lijiang, China, and just seeing how different um, people live and sort of act in their environment and how we should act in their environment. And then after that, I went to an executive leadership program that was done together with Yale School of Management, um, where we were standing on the beaches of Normandy, learning about leadership under pressure. And it gave something that somebody always said to me, the best leaders stay calm under pressure, an entirely new meaning, standing on those beaches. Right. And then most recently, I attended the Leading Women Executives Program, and and truthfully, for me, that was really a turning point. You know, I, I, as I prepared to come and do this podcast with Jenny, you know, I was out of my comfort zone. You know, this I'm a new leader. This is the first time I'm sharing some of this about my leadership journey. And for years, I used to sit in these rooms and, and events and listen to people talk about their leadership journeys. And I just sit there completely enamored by it. And I would say, oh, you know, I really wish I had a leadership journey. And what you find out when you go through classes like I did, like the Leading Women Executives program, we all have a leadership journey. You just have to give yourself room to discover it. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about the positive and the negative experiences that we've had in our personal life, in our professional life the decisions we've made and the why behind those decisions. We've looked at our personality tests and, and our strength finders and all of that, I think really gave me the confidence to say, Hmm, I, I, maybe I am special. Maybe there are things about me that do give me the qualities to, to follow some of the people that I've admired before me. And so, you know, it, it's, it's made me extremely loyal to the company because they've invested in me and now I want to invest back in them.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And leadership is everywhere, right? Like this is something we keep honing to our our young leaders, our early career programs that you lead, you know, wherever you are. It's not something that comes with a title, you know, or something that happens later in your career. You, you lead every day. You know, we need early career people to step up and, and start leading, right? And I think that's really come through in the pandemic as well, that people have been given opportunities to step up and rise to the occasion in ways that maybe they didn't have those opportunities before. But, you know, that's a wonderful thing that you can sometimes do in times of crisis,
2: You know,
1: along those lines, Margaret, I think one of the more interesting insights um, that I had gotten when I went through leading women executives a a dozen years ago was this um, view from uh, Professor Ron Burt down at the University of Chicago, focused on networks and influencers. And this is, you know, in the early days of social networks, but his focus was more on those personal relationships. And a couple of things that he pointed out that I think are especially relevant in this post-pandemic time as people are debating what the future of the workplace is going to be, whether there's remote permanently, on-site like it used to be, or some hybrid mix, is really identifying who are those people in your organization who may not have the title of manager or you may not mm-hmm. view them you know, from the executive suite as being your leaders but they're the ones who are those influencers throughout the organization who are that font of knowledge or that fulcrum of tying people and information and knowledge together. And I think it's going to be a really extra set of responsibilities for executives to not fall into the trap of just identifying, you know, who were the people that they traditionally saw as leaders, but how do you figure out um, in a hybrid or a remote organization who those influencers, those real leaders uh, down in the ranks really are. And it's going to be very important to use them appropriately as this new normal uh, falls into place.
0: Yeah. He's a great sociologist. I'm a sociologist. So thank you for bringing up a Ah. sociologist as a thought leader in business. Um, it's great when the social scientists go over to the other side. They do A lot of them are doing great, great work. Um, so I know that we are all on this call together, huge fans of strengths-based leadership. Yeah. Not everyone embraces this perspective as their orienting principle around leadership development and talent management, but I love it. I know you all love it. So Jenny, how did you come to realize its fundamental importance in how you grow and lead high-performing teams?
1: The first time I really experienced it was when I was named CIO at USG, so 15 ish years ago. And I inherited a team of very strong technical leaders with very different personalities. And I had um, an outside advisor introduce me to the strengths based concept and it just hit me how important that was going to be that it wasn't just you know who are the people who understand applications development versus operations versus security versus program management versus testing but how they go about their work and having that right combination of skills on that leadership team uh, was really an aha moment for me and i i started to use it Um, with my team. And I remember, you know, very classic, you see this, you know, in any technical analytic team, you know, everybody wanted to know not what were their top five strengths, but what was the rank order of all 30 and trying to talk people into the sense of it doesn't matter what six through 30 are focus on one through five, because under stress, you play to your strengths. Under real stress your strengths can turn into your weaknesses and they can also be a leading indicator that perhaps you're getting under stress. Mm -hmm. And the example that I always use is one of my strengths is I'm a maximizer, which means I pretty much apply the 80 20 rule to just about everything that goes on, you know, do we have time for this yes no okay move on and. Part of that, I realize, when I am under tremendous amount of stress, I turn my maximizer into a very command and control. So Mm -hmm. my strength actually becomes a bit of a weakness. And by having that introspection and that understanding of what the pros and cons of the right way to use your strengths are, I think can really give you insight as a leader um, into when you may be relying too much on one strength and you need to balance that back out with um, one of your other natural tendencies to, to prevent you from falling into bad traps. So I found uh, strengths to be personally useful. I found it to be tremendously useful in building out teams. I found it to be a great vocabulary in helping teams uh, work together. And it can be a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know. I love it too. And who wants to sit through performance reviews year after year after year with the exact same conversation? You know, you really should focus more on being X, Y, Z. And like, okay, yes, I'm not that good at that. So where can I hone this and, you know, focus my energies to where you really need that and want it and want it to shine. And when we find that just in life generally, it's so much more rewarding, right?
1: Exactly. Um, It doesn't matter how much I work on it. Patience. Will never land in my top five. So let's stop coaching me on patience and instead, you know, coach me on how to play to my strength as a learner. And taking some more time to learn something is fun.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure.
1: Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100
0: years, performers
1: and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones.
0: Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So Jill, I know that Jenny put these principles into action with you. So tell us about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of Strength Finder until Jenny had come to UL and I had learned that she had asked all the officers in the company at that time to take the strength finder test before they went to a meeting. And a couple people who were at that meeting came back and they were raving about strength finder and not necessarily strength finder, the book and the test, but what it did to the organization. And, you know, my boss at the time came back and said, you need to take strength finder. You know, it's it's important to Leverage your strengths, not be afraid to admit your weaknesses when you're building teams, you know, build teams of people that might have strengths that complement your weaknesses. And so, so Strength Finder has become something at UL that almost everybody I talk to has taken. And Jenny said it, it's a common vocabulary and it's become a common vocabulary. When we form project teams, the first thing we do Everybody shares their strengths so that we can get a feel for how the team's going to perform. And then we make sure that we have a good balance of strengths on the team um, so that we can complement each other. And, and, and truly for me, you know, being a new leader and, and coming here and just being my authentic self, um, you know, I spent a lot of time worried about the things I wasn't good at. And I didn't spend enough time thinking about the things that I was good at. And I think hearing Jenny talk about it and hearing others in the organization talk about it has made me more confident that it's okay, that I'm not great at everything. <laughs> I'm certainly great at some things and, and, and that's, that's, that's good. Um, so don't worry about the things that you're not so good at.
0: Right, so that you're spending your time and energy on the things that you are good at. I mean, that's better for the organization. That's better for you. You know, it's better for your clients, your people. I mean, everyone is happier when we're doing the things that we're good at and we love doing, and the engine is running, and isn't that wonderful versus constantly focusing on like this little piece that doesn't work? I'm gonna also just wave my feminist flag now. And I think that there's a lot of potential here particularly for women leaders, because we know all of the research shows again and again how much women tend to focus on what they're not good at. And we know in all of the studies that they feel like they have to meet 100% of the job criteria before they believe they can do the job, which you don't need to do, right? You need to be able to do a portion of the job and the part that really matters, and you can augment your team with the things that maybe you're not so great at. And I think that there's a lot of potential here for developing women leaders in particular and getting over that mindset of, you know, I have to be able to do all of it.
1: Yeah, and I think to Jill's point, having that vocabulary around getting used to talking about your strengths so that when you're in an interview and ask a question about, well, do you have experience in X, Y, Z? And you don't have that direct experience, but having the confidence to say, well, you know, here's how I would tackle that. And I would play to strength one, strength two, and strength three that I have, which will give me the capabilities to succeed in this. Right. And I think that's a, a really important element of strengths finders is, is gaining that confidence to talk about the things that you're good at in a um, in a very positive context.
0: Yeah. So for everyone listening, this is not that expensive. You can go and take this. I think it's under Gallup, right? It's the Clifton Strengths. I think it's like $29.99 or something like that. This is not some massive investment. They'll give you an amazing report. You'll get your top five. You don't get the six through 30. Um, But as Jenny says, you don't need those. You'll get your top five. But I really encourage you to do that. It's a fantastic investment in yourself.
1: And I want to tell you, as a maximizer, you don't have to read the whole book. You do the quiz online. You get your top five and you read those five chapters and you're good to go. Yeah. And then the rest can be referenced when your team members have something that you're unfamiliar with. You can flip open the book and and really understand um, how to play to that strength as well.
0: I had this amazing mentor, this man, Chuck Maniscalco. He was the CEO of uh, Gatorade. Um, And then that whole division when they got acquired by Pepsi. But he is the one that introduced me to this. And there's also this other exercise he introduced me to. Harvard Business Review has an article on it. It's called The Reflected Best Self. I also encourage the people listening uh, to do that as well. So it's kind of the qualitative complement to this. So the way it goes is you ask 10 to 20 people, preferably 20, more data or better. We're all all science people here. uh, To write a narrative description of when they saw you at your best. And just, you know, write you a letter, an email, like, here's a way that I saw your best. And you ask people in your family, your friends, past jobs, current jobs, school, you know, all different walks of life. And then you just do a a content analysis of it. And the themes that emerge are so consistent. And you start to realize. That your strengths are your strengths in all different environments. This isn't just at work. And you show up in this way and you lead from this place everywhere you go. Uh, And it was really reinforcing for me. And it's also like when do we get opportunities for people to tell us about when they saw us at our best? It's also just a really good um, pick-me-up if you ever (laughs) need it to ask people to do this exercise. But I think these two things together, that one costs nothing, right, to ask people to write this and the strengths is not that expensive. So that's true. That's your call to action. After listening to this podcast, you have homework. Go do your strengths, and if you have time, the reflected best self. So, um, I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing in how companies are starting to really open their aperture in terms of where they look to hire talent. You know, particularly in tech. Where we know that there is a need to significantly increase the diversity of our teams and how we build pathways to leadership. And this is obviously a focus not just for UL and not just a passion for you personally, Jenny, which I know that it is, and the tech sector, but the city of Chicago itself I think is making some really significant investments in this regard. And Jenny, in addition to being the CEO of UL, you're also one of our city's great civic leaders. So if you can share with us some of the work that you're doing, you know, personally at UL, and then what the city is doing that people can learn from.
1: I'm really energized um, both by tech in general, by math specifically, and by the opportunity that's ahead of us in Chicago. And I'll go back you know, 30, almost 35 years to when I graduated college, and the disheartening piece in all of this is that I believe there are fewer women today uh, graduating in STEM topics, particularly in, you know, computer application science area where I came from. Um, there are fewer today than there were 35 years ago. So the expression of the opportunity needs to be amplified, I think, and part of it comes from some efforts that you Uh, does, for example, um, like in sponsoring FIRST Robotics, a contest for young girls. I just saw uh, the winners of of this year's uh, program, Uh, but really trying to make it real for people. And I I frequently wonder if, um, you know, young girls in particular, they just don't see themselves or understand the power of having that depth of math and science and technical interest And, you know, I always, I always tell people, you know, to, to encourage their daughters to love math. And if they don't love math, to encourage them to respect it. Because I I used to joke with my girls, in addition to being the safety freak, I would say there's nothing that math and science can't solve. And, you know, they'd argue with me sometimes, like when their seatbelt was stuck, you know, "I seatbelt stuck and this isn't math. And my response is, well, actually it is, it's force, but (laughs) let me unclick it for you. I won't give you the formula. But, you know, I think finding ways um, to have girls see themselves. Um, For International Women's Day at UL, we uh, hosted a program that featured a film called Pioneers in Skirts and um this film was made um by just a, a fantastic filmmaker with some terrific insight and one of the moments uh featured two little girls who were making robot robots and they're they get told by um the director you know well as girls get older they don't pursue robotics and and they were shocked and so it's natural to have this curiosity in the world around you no matter you know male female what country you're born in what you know demographic you're in there's this curiosity that's very natural and i think it's up to all of us as parents as mentors as leaders um to think about how do we maintain that curiosity and interest so it's um that passion that I have has led to then, um, a few years ago when I was, um, a CEO at USG, uh, Penny Pritzker called me up and said, Hey, we're starting up, uh, this focus. Um, we haven't named it yet, but we have to figure out how to make Chicago a destination viewed as a leader in the tech space by 2033. That turned into um, I dozens, maybe close to 100 leaders from many Chicago institutions, corporations, universities, not-for-profits coming together to really develop this vision of why is Chicago not today on the radar screen? You know, it'd be easy to say, well, you know, the weather's bad, nobody wants to live here, but it's it's very different than that. It's you know, do we have the right funding, the right interest from venture capital? Do we have the right relationships with the universities? Uh, Do we have the right graduates? The good news is the pieces are here. Uh, And particularly when you look at the diverse nature of students graduating um, in the tech space out of the universities in the greater Chicagoland area, Um, the talent is here. So, and the companies are here. So how do we match this better. That launched into being named P33, which the civic committee uh, is, uh, it's really a subsidiary of the civic committee and um, terrific sponsorship of it. Uh, Penny Prisker, Chris Gladwin and Kelly Welch are the three uh, board leaders. There's a number of us who serve on the board and a number of these great opportunities for companies uh, to recruit. Uh, More diverse tech talent um, and a whole emphasis on bringing back uh, tech talent who Left Chicago and how do we get them back and then just a terrific emphasis on matching those funding opportunities for entrepreneurs and Matching those entrepreneurial businesses to needs that corporations have so it really is this entire ecosystem infrastructure uh, that we need to build. But I think there's there's real energy behind it and real commitment and uh, tremendous potential.
0: Yeah. And so do you see the solution for women compared to other underrepresented minority groups? Is it the same or do we approach them differently when we think about better developing the tech talent?
1: I think some of the root causes are the same, which is, you know, in anything in life, you need to envision yourself in some type of role in the future. Mm -hmm. So if you don't see someone who looks like you, um, who gives you that, that perspective or that, you know, that ladder that you can climb up to, to be like them, it makes it harder. So I think some of this is getting those students in the universities or the city colleges or high schools um, to really understand how they could fit in. And and that sense of fitting in is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so now I'm going to bring it full circle back to the strengths, which is how do you explain that if you have these strengths, this natural curiosity, this proclivity to math or science, or this, you know, love of, you know, developing an app on your cell phone, how do you turn that into a full-time career and a path in a, in a world where technology changes so quickly that, you know, what we may need 10 years from now is nothing to do what's there today, but those raw skills are still applicable.
0: Yeah. And there's something else you said that I think is so important which is you don't have to love math, but you have to respect math. And I remember when I graduated from University of Chicago, we had the head of Argonne and that was at giving the commencement address. And that was the point he really was hammering home is you have to at least understand what is being talked about. You don't have to be a scientist per se, but you can't just say, oh, well, that's you know over my head or I don't understand that. You have to at least be able to understand the fundamentals of what's going on. Um, and then you don't know, know how to apply that. So, Jill, I'm curious. Do you love math? Do you
2: respect math? Are you somewhere in between? If, if math was a strength, it would definitely not be my top five. Um, I do respect math. <laughs> 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 it, it, math was a was a hard subject for me in school. Uh, but what I would say is, you know, for me, STEM in in the idea of STEM, like Jenny said, whether if it's not math then look at science or technology or engineering and and find something that you love and for me it was more in the science and technology area you know i i graduated from college right at the start of the dot-com boom and i had an aunt who was a dean of admissions at a college and i remember she was looking through piles of applications one day and she said she kind of looked up at me and said When you graduate from college, you too will be in a pile of applications and you need to find things that are (laughs) going to differentiate you. And so because I really love technology and I'm a I'm a hands on learner, I taught myself how to code. I coded websites and e-commerce sites. And, and I would just watch somebody do it and then I would go do it myself and, and I learned. And it resulted in seven job offers out of school. So my aunt gave me really good advice. And so you know I believe that there's something in STEM for everyone and it's important to discover what it is and how you can use that throughout
0: your life. And so now you have married that with a deep understanding of customer experience, right? So tell us a little bit about your job today, what it is you're doing, and how you've had to bring these two together.
2: Yeah. You know, I I learned early on that watching people's behavior is really, really important and to understand behaviors. So when I used to develop those websites, I would go home to my family and friends and I would say navigate through the site and find a product or go look for this. And the way they would do it is not the way that I thought they would do it. And so I realized that being able to really watch and observe how people behave would help me do my job better. So fast forward, you know, to, to where I am at UL today, I work in a supply chain insights business, which is primarily software. So technology and digital solutions that people interact with to do their day-to-day jobs. The best way to know how to satisfy our customers' needs is to walk in our customers' shoes, to really understand what are the jobs that our customers need to accomplish what are the pains that they experience when trying to accomplish those jobs so how do you walk next to your customer to really understand the challenges they face in achieving their goals or the challenges that they may face in In trying to get their next job opportunity. And so what I did is I studied our customers. I spent more time outside of the walls of UL than inside. And I brought that insight back in and it really began to inform how we would go to market, how we would build our value propositions to our customers. And customers appreciated it. They appreciated that we were there to try to solve their problems and I wanted to walk a day in their shoes. So I think the big takeaway is you have to at least have a
0: basic fundamental understanding you know, of the technology. You don't have to be the science geek, right? But you have to at least not be afraid of it, respect it, have a basic understanding, and then you can marry that with all of the things that you want to do with your career. So what do you think is it? Why have we seen this backslide with women and all underrepresented groups? And is there an institution or an organization, someone you can point to that you think is really doing it well. They are helping move that needle better than anyone. Because we keep I keep hearing a lot about the problem and all the things we have to do, but I've yet to see someone lift up an example of they've figured it out. You know, they now have X percent or, you know, whatever they've done, they've really moved the needle.
1: I think there's a lot of great pockets, but I also think that it hasn't been unified into, I'm going to call it a specific movement. You know, I think we can talk about increasing our diversity as a company in many ways, but we never say specifically, well, we're going to increase the diversity of our science team or our engineering team or our tech team. You know, I think you've got to start at the board of directors at the C-suite and make sure that you've got the right representation there, because then those people will ask the right questions. And in asking the questions and shining the light on the problem, it will trickle down through the organization where people do a better job on recruiting and promoting. But you've also got to do the bottoms up. You've got to be able to attract the people in straight out of tech schools or colleges or you know, recruit professionally at younger ages and build them up into the culture of the organization. So you've got to marry those two things together. And I am an optimist by nature. So I, you know, I believe that the evolution is continuing. I believe that, you know, when we look at a leader like Jill, who's on one hand, you know, natural state is marketing and business development, but has the right curiosity and the right respect for tech topics and, got promoted into leadership roles because of that combination. I think the more examples of that type of playing to people's strengths that are out there, the, the better chance we have of continuing to attract the right people. So what came together for you, Jenny? Was it a
0: mentor? Was it something early on in your education? Was there an experience? Like you didn't fall off. You kept going, <laughs> yeah. you know, in STEM. Um, can you point to anything
1: Interestingly, the, the easiest thing for me to point to is my family. My parents were teachers. My father taught calculus out at Elk Grove High School in the Northwest Suburbs and coached football, um, as well as taught everything in math, but you know, was always looking at that high-level math and encouraged me to become a math major in college, which I started out doing. My mother was an English teacher who wished that she had been an engineer. So Even when I was in college, she was going back and taking classes in coding, partially because she was interested and partially because, you know, there were opportunities uh, for her to get into various companies through those avenues. So I had that. And then my aunt, who is almost more like an older sister to me, was an executive at IBM. And I watched her career from when she joined IBM when I was four or five years old to the time that I joined IBM you know, 20 years later and really understood how her love of math and her abilities opened up a lot of different doors for her. So that kept me just very engaged because I saw what it could look like. Right. And when I joined IBM, there were a lot of women and it was very diverse. And this was the late 80s. And they had spent a lot of time really thinking about what's the right way to to marry that tops down and that bottoms up and, and create a, a pretty diverse, tech-savvy workforce. So that yeah. became, I think, the impetus for the rest of my career were those first five years that I spent at IBM. So we have to find
0: ways to augment that for people who are coming from home situations where they don't have that kind of modeling and, and mentorship. And so how do we augment that? through everything that we do. Jill, for you, what was the best advice or guidance that you received along your
2: career? Well, um, one of them would be something somebody said to me earlier today, which was be yourself, be your authentic self. And so I always think it's nice to be reminded of that. And then there's one other that as I stepped into this role, someone had said, and it's sort of has stayed with me over the last six months. And that was assume positive intent and start with yes. And that person who said that was also an advocate of mine through the leading women's executive program. And I wrote it on a post-it note and it sits on, it's stuck to my computer and I look at it every day. And I think that's great advice. Can
0: you imagine what this world would be like if we all assumed positive intent? In every interaction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, just imagine. imagine I know. It's I want to live in that world. concept. Yeah. I mean, posts on social media, you know, everything. Yeah, just I'm assume fine. positive intent. It would be a beautiful world. I'd like to live there. <laughs> so let's just do, in the time that we have left, a little bit of quick get to know you for each of you. So we'll go back and forth. These are some fun questions that we like to ask. We get some surprising answers
2: sometimes, so it'll be fun. So Jill, we'll start with you. Favorite business book? I really like the business book, Leadership and Self-Deception. In all of the leadership programs that I've attended, that has been a book that we've been asked to read and one that I've asked a lot of my team members to read. And it's really one that transformed the way I work and live. It's helped me deal with conflict, and I read it. A couple times a year. That's quite the endorsement that you read it a couple times a year. I have not
0: read that one. I'm going to make a note of that. Jenny, what about you? I
1: loved Predictably Irrational by yes. Damon Ariely. And it was early days of behavioral economics becoming mainstream. And I'll pick up a chapter here and there just as I face something. I well, what would Dan say about this?
0: Yes. I'm a huge uh, girl fan of his you're like after my heart today. You're quoting all these social scientists. It's fantastic.
2: You I know I met him at I a I com- was a
0: liberal arts major. <laughs> yes. I met him at a conference and I really got so nervous. I, I, it was like a celebrity. I'm like, I really want to go up and talk to him. But, you know, and of course, he's just, he's the super you know, nice guy. He is guy a ever.
1: very nice guy. I actually golfed with him once. He's not a good golfer, but he's a terrific <laughs> guy. <laughs> I'm not a good golfer either. So we had a great time. I
0: love driving love it and then the rest of golf i could just leave but if i could just like drive off the tee i find it super fun but i don't want to do the rest of it (laughs) maybe ride around in a golf cart that'll be right right um jill do you have a professional mantra or a
2: saying that you are known for by your team that they would recognize i say have fun a lot (laughs) when we're kicking off projects when we're working on things i always say at the end of the call have fun You know, work sometimes can be a drain on our energy, but laughter and fun feed me energy. And so I think if we can have Mm -hmm. fun while we work, we'll keep a a good balance in our lives. Jenny, what about you?
1: I have a lot of different ones, but I think my latest that I've been saying to the team the most is miles to go before we sleep. I love that poem. And it's very true right now. Yes. Yes.
0: It feels very true. Um, okay. Jill, morning person, night owl?
2: Morning.
1: Jenny? Night owl who's married to a morning person. Oh, how does that work? He's pulled me into the morning hours.
0: <laughs> I'm a morning person married to a night owl. It works when you have young kids. It's actually a good, it was a yeah. good strategy for us. Uh, Jill, coffee or tea? Coffee. Jenny? A lot of coffee. Coffee. A lot of coffee. Uh, Jill, dog person, cat person, neither? Cat person. Jenny.
1: Definitely a cat person.
0: Me too. We all cat people. Jill, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? Brush my teeth.
1: <laughs> Jenny. Yell at my cat for turning on the Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> do you do the Peloton every morning? Not every morning, but many. But he's learned that if he presses, jumps up and presses the screen, the light goes on and we get out of bed.
0: Yeah. Oh, I know. They're, uh, I love them, but yeah. Jill, last show you binge watched and loved. (laughs) Shit's Creek. Yes. So good. Jenny. (laughs) The Queen's Gambit. Yes. Both really good. Chess, science, math, right? She was great. Uh, Jill, what's your favorite emoji that you use in text messages?
2: I use the smiley face a lot, but not the one that shows the teeth, the one that actually has the red rosy cheeks. The teeth one kind of creeps me out a little bit. Uh I know. It's more like a, uh, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Jenny?
1: I most often use the smiley face with sunglasses. Cool. Cool. (laughs) <laughs> this was great. It was
0: so good to get to know you both a little bit better. Thank you for sharing your journey and your insights. We have some great homework for everyone. They have some really good books to read. They have to do their strengths finders. I think they'll get a lot out of all of those activities. And thanks so much. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Panar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at ExecClub and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.